Would you take your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 will be our text this morning. Just as a way of contextual reminder, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, we began seeing how Jesus was the final revelation of God, and then we moved in to see how Jesus was greater than angels, and the argument goes that Jesus was greater than Moses, Jesus was greater than Joshua. And this morning we move into a theme in the book of Hebrews that lasts all the way to the 10th chapter, and that is this, is that Jesus is the great high priest. He is greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And that is going to be the argument that takes place. And we'll begin to see some of those arguments unfold here in the text this morning that Jesus is our great high priest. And so the point is, to those that the author was writing to, is why would you go back to your former way of life when Jesus is greater than that which your former life represented? And we see this unfold this morning with this. is The author gives us two truths, and each truth is followed with an action that we are to follow. So here's what you're going to see. You're going to see truth one, and then a, a command or an exhortation that the believer is supposed to respond with. You're going to see then truth two with another exhortation. So you see two truths with two exhortations that come out of the text. So let us hear the word of God. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, then, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So you see, truth number one is Jesus is the great high priest, so let us hold fast to our confession. And truth number two is that Jesus is a sympathizing high priest, so let us draw near to him. Those are, that is the flow of the text. And it begins with the truth in verse 14 that Jesus is the great high priest. The author says, since then, we have a great high priest. Now, the high priest was the priest that was the one that was responsible for the day of atonement to make propitiation on behalf of the people of God. He would first go through a cleansing of himself. He would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year to represent the people. That's what the high priest did. But you notice that here Jesus isn't called just the high priest. He's called the great high priest. So it begins with a statement that Jesus is greater than the high priesthood. And specifically, this is looking back to the first high priest, Aaron, Moses' brother. Jesus is greater than the high priesthood. Now notice what it says. This is why he has passed through the heavens. That means that Jesus, 
sits at the right hand of the Father. You see that in chapter 1, verse 3, where we read this, after making purification for sins, which is a priestly duty, it says then that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So this is a statement that our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon making sacrifice, has gone into the heavens, and there he resides there now. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is in the position of power. He is in the position of sovereignty. And that is our great high priest. But what is communicated in the idea that Jesus passed into the heavens? Think about it this way. What's communicated with the idea of God being in the heavens? Well, we're here on earth. He's separate from us. There's something different about him. That he's set apart. That he's holy. We know that to be in heaven and to reside in the presence of God, pure holiness is required. We know that we're not worthy of heaven. We know that we're not worthy to sit in the presence of God. And so there's a separatedness in that idea that God is in heaven. But what do we read about Jesus as our high priest? Jesus, by his self-giving life and death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, by his sacrifices entered into the presence of God as the God-man on behalf of a people to bring us near. Jesus has accomplished for his people that which is impossible for us to accomplish on our own. So God who is transcendent, God who is far off, God who is holy, God who resides in pure light, Christ goes into his presence to bring us near. But there's also another picture here that we should see. Once a year, the high priest would do a sacrifice and then go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. And that holy of holies was to represent the very presence of God. What does it say Jesus did? Jesus didn't just do a symbolic entering into the presence of God. Jesus didn't just do something that he has to cleanse himself and make himself clean before he can be in the presence of God. But rather, Jesus himself pierced the veil of heaven. Something Aaron could never, ever do. You see, the distance between us and God is infinite. The distance between us and God is there is a forever and and impossible gap that cannot be bridged. But the truth of the gospel here is that Jesus is that bridge as our great high priest. And Jesus makes it possible to go into the very presence of God because he is passed into the heavens. And this is a wonderful reminder. This is a wonderful reminder. It would have been a wonderful reminder for the Hebrews as they were tempted to look back upon the the Old Covenant. They were tempted to look back upon the the priesthood, to look back upon the, 
ceremonies and the sacrifices and the look back upon the temple. They were looking back on things that they could touch, things that were tangible, and they were finding comfort in those things, and they thought, maybe we should go back to those things we can see. Isn't that how we oftentimes think, too? They wanted to go back to ritualistic things that would produce results that they could see here and now. They couldn't see Jesus. Jesus had passed from their sight. But they could see a priest. They could see a sacrifice. They could touch those things. What's the reminder here? Is that our high priest is actually in heaven. He has already accomplished the sacrifice. Our high priest is there in heaven right now on our behalf. What does a priest do? He mediates between two people. The statement is this, is that Jesus is in heaven right now mediating on behalf of his people. He has accomplished redemption and he resides in the heavenly court on behalf of his people. No, we cannot see Jesus now, but his word tells us what he is doing on our behalf. And we have to understand and be encouraged in faith here. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To read this, that Jesus has passed through the heavens, that Jesus is the great high priest, is to stir our faith, to not look upon that which we can see, but to look upon that which we have heard, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what it says, it identifies our great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the human name of of Jesus. He was named Jesus because he would save his people. But you also see here that his deity is stressed because he's the Son of God. As chapter 1, verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Almighty God is the Lord Jesus Christ. This one that has passed through the heavens is none other than Jesus, the God-man, the Son of God. One who is in two natures, both God and man, in one person. Perfectly united together. And his humanity represents us. But because he is God, he has propitiated the wrath of God. This is a wonderful truth that we are reminded of, of our high priest. So here comes the admonition. Here comes the exhortation. Let us hold fast our confession. In light of all of that truth, of who Jesus is, as our high priest, hold fast to our confession. To hold fast to something means to grasp it in your hand with all your might. It means to strain with your grip. John Owen says this is a resolution an intention of the mind, to keep the mind focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us to hold fast 
Many times in chapter 6, verse 18, we read this, where we are told, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we are told to hold fast to the hope that is set before us, but here we are told, hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? What is the confession that we are to hold fast to? You see the same admonition in chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So what is this confession that we are to hold fast to? The text tells us the confession is this, Jesus, the Son of God. That is the confession. That Jesus, that is the human name of Jesus, He is the Son of God, identifies that He is God Himself. Jesus is the Son of God. That is our confession. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That is our confession, that Jesus is the Son of God. You see a similar confession in Romans in chapter 10. And this is the earliest confession of the church. Paul writes in Romans 10 verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. By the way, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that is the gospel. That is a statement of the gospel. Verse 10 goes on to say, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Let us hold fast to the confession that Jesus is Lord. Let us hold fast to the confession, Jesus, the Son of God. He is our great high priest. He is the one that resides in the presence of God mediating on behalf of His people. Let us then hold fast to this confession of who Jesus is. Have you confessed Jesus as Lord, but perhaps been taken off course? Hold fast to the confession. Don't turn back. Is this your confession? Is this your confession that Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord, our high priest? Have you trusted in this great high priest, the Lord Jesus? If the answer is yes, then the admonition to you is hold fast to him. That's the command, is hold fast to him. In times of suffering... Hold fast to your great high priest. In times of prosperity, hold fast to your great high priest. In times of tribulation, hold fast. In times of doubt, hold fast. In times of questioning, 
The Word of God. Does God know me? Does God love me? Hold fast. Hold fast to our confession that Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord. There's nothing greater than the Lord Jesus Christ that you can hold on to. For only Jesus Christ has pierced the veil of heaven to mediate on behalf of His people. What else are you going to hold on to for salvation? What else are we going to cling to that we could go before God? Are we going to cling to our our goodness? I'm a good person. Are we going to hold to our good deeds, the good things I've done? Do we think that at the end of the day, the balance in the scales will outweigh our bad things that we've done as if that was enough? What are you going to hold to? What are you going to hold fast to in this life as you walk through this life? There's only one thing and one person you can hold to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Him. May we never be ashamed of the Lord before man and deny our confession. May we never feel the pressures of this life to where we would let go of this confession because of societal pressure. May we always hold to the glorious truths of the gospel that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the Son of God. May we always hold fast our confession of the essentials of the truth. May we always hold fast to the Word of God and never allow it to lose our, uh, leave our grip. But there's something else here for us as a church. May we exhort one another to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. When your brother or your sister in the Lord is struggling, encourage them to hold fast. Because perhaps you might be struggling now and you need someone to come to you and say, hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great high priest. There's no greater and better comforting words than that, that Jesus stands on your behalf right now before God the Father, and God the Father smiles upon you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. So hold fast to Him. Perhaps you're in need of that encouragement this morning. And if you're in need of that encouragement this morning, then I say to you this, hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold fast to Him. There's a second truth. And if it couldn't get any more wonderful, it begins to get more wonderful, and that is that he is a sympathizing high priest. Look at verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Is your grip loosening on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you have a high priest who sympathizes. Do you feel like that you have, sometimes you can't hold on? Well, you've got a high priest that understands. That's how it flows out of the text. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in contrast, we see to his position in heaven and his station as God's son, as one who is without sin, who is one who is is holy, one who is perfect, we read these incomprehensible words, he's actually able to sympathize with you. He's able to sympathize with your weaknesses. He's able to, and what this means is, to share our feelings because he shared in our experience of suffering. 
But I dare say Jesus' suffering was greater than any suffering we've ever experienced. So any suffering we may have, and we say, no one understands what I'm going through, you look to Jesus. He understands it far better than anyone can. Where else would you look? Because he experienced our shared suffering. And this is a shocking statement considering all that we have read in Hebrews, that he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. It's amazing when you think about the cross, Jesus hung upon the cross, but yet Jesus created the cross that he hung upon. And Jesus held the molecules of the very cross that he was upon. He held those together. That one is able to share in our feelings. This is a shocking statement. In the Baptist Confession, it teaches that that God is without passions, and that's kind of a controversial statement, but it's a true one. It means this, and simply this, is that God's not affected by anything. God is unchangeable. God is immutable. He's not dependent upon anything. He's not dependent upon anyone. God doesn't experience happiness or anger or sadness based upon His creation. If He did, that would make then God dependent upon His creation to fill those things. I know that that's a difficult thing to think through, but it's true, otherwise He's not God. So what we see here is incomprehensible. And it is this, is that the Son of God is actually touched by our infirmities. That the Son of God, the one who is the exact nature and exact imprint of the nature of God, understands our weaknesses. When I think of the the mystery of God, this is perhaps the greatest one. On the one hand, it's comforting to know God is not affected by me, right? As if I could change God. If I could change God, that's very troubling. On the one hand, that's a very comforting truth to know that God is not subject to change. And at the same time, we read here this wonderful truth that Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He is aware, experientially, of them. Taking on flesh brought him into intimate affliction with suffering. So while we confess on the one hand Jesus suffered and died and experienced temptation, we also have to see this. God cannot suffer. God cannot be tempted. God does not experience fluctuating emotions. God doesn't experience hunger. God doesn't experience fatigue. Only a human nature can experience those things. Our gospel is so glorious that the immutable, unchangeable God took on flesh to bring us near to Him And in that, he experienced 
temptation. He experienced fatigued. He experienced our frailties. So Jesus is not just a distant high priest that's unaware of our struggles. He was beset with hunger. He was beset with pain and suffering. You know, the wonderful truth of this is that we can never say God does not understand or God doesn't care because God sent His Son to experience far more in terms of pain and suffering and temptation than any of us. In Philippians, we read this in chapter 2, verse 6, "...who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant." Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one has ever gone from so high to so low. No one has ever experienced the type of condescension that the Lord Jesus Christ experienced. You you could take the richest, most powerful, most affluent person on the face of the earth and put them in the gutter, and they have not even begun to experience what Jesus, as the Son of God, who takes on human flesh, experienced. That's the glorious truth of the gospel, that God would do that to accomplish salvation for a people. That's our great high priest. That's who we confessed is the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says he himself was tempted without sin. That is that Jesus never once sinned. He, was ne- he never sinned. In fact, because he was sinless, the temptation that he faced was intensified. It was an intensified temptation. Any temptation we may face in principle is stated here to be faced by Jesus, but it was intensified to its fullness. Why? Because he never gave into it. He never surrendered to it. Now there's a term in theology called impeccability. And impeccability means this, is that Jesus is unable to sin. He was impeccable. And I would say we would confess the impeccability of Jesus, that Jesus was not able to sin. So you might think then, well, if Jesus was impeccable, was it a true temptation? One author writes this, quote, Christ battled as he lived under the promise of God's word and walked by faith, and as the horror of sin was presented to his holy mind, the holiness of the Son made the temptations more dark and offensive. We're sinful. We've experienced sin. We were born in sin. We have partaken in sin, in various sins, because we're sinful people. We sin because we're sinful. 
So when we face temptations, while we may walk away convicted when we give in to those temptations, while we may struggle with them and go, oh, that's a horrible sin, we're not pure and holy as God is. So what this author is saying is to put a temptation before the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfectly holy, who perfectly accomplished the will of the Father, is to put something that is so bleak and dark before him that it is absolutely horrendous. He experienced that. He experienced the darkest of temptations on behalf of his people, but yet was without sin. Now, when we talk about temptations, I know we've mentioned this before, but it's important to mention it again. Jesus' temptations were not temptations from the inside. You and I have temptations from the inside where our mind wanders into areas that it shouldn't, and we think, I would like to do that, and we face that temptation from within. Jesus never faced a temptation from within. You and I have also faced temptations from outside of us, where someone comes along and puts something before us and says, wouldn't you like to partake in that? And we can say, no. Or we go, yeah, I would. That's the type of temptation that Jesus faced. Is that temptation from the outside where someone like Satan in the wilderness puts something before him and says, wouldn't you like this? And Jesus says, no. My will is to do the will of my Father. That is the type of temptation that Jesus faced In Isaiah 53, we read this. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. You think about that. Would that have been a temptation to open his mouth? Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's an amazing statement. Jesus, the Son of God who created all of the universe, who is omnipotent God before the shearers, is silent. You read in verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When violence was done to the Lord Jesus, he did not return violence. But as it says in 1 Peter, kept entrusting himself to the will of his Father. It always pleased the Lord Jesus to be obedient to his Father. It pleased the Lord Jesus to do all that the Father had commanded him to do. The Lord Jesus faced everything that could be thrown at him by Satan, yet without sin. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. He who has faced greater temptation, greater struggles, greater pain than any of us ever will understands anything we may go through. So here's the admonition to us in verse 16. It's drawn near. Verse 16 says this, 
let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not a hard command to follow if we meditate on what was said of the Lord Jesus Christ that we are called to come unto Him. As Jesus Himself said, all who are weary and heavy laden come unto Me and I will give you rest. Paul says in Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. This wonderful high priest, this wonderful Savior, He calls you to draw near to Him. And He calls you to draw near to Him with confidence. Despite the fearsome nature of a holy God that requires a blood sacrifice, He calls you to draw near to Him. I think of that story in the Gospels where in the presence of Jesus, Peter said in fear, Depart from me, for I am sinful man. He was in the presence of Jesus, saw Jesus' glory, recognized He was in the presence of God Almighty, and Peter in fear said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And then we read this text that this same Jesus has passed into the heavens, resides in heaven. How much more fear is produced in thinking about this Jesus? who reigns supreme in the heavens. Yet, what does the text teach us? Not to depart, not to ask Him to depart from us, but rather, He asks us to draw near to Him. This holy God says, Come unto me, and do it with confidence. And why can we do it with confidence? Well, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see, if you're covered with the blood of Jesus, you are no longer counted as sinful. You are counted as righteous. And because of the righteousness of Christ, you are called to draw near to Him, not to a throne of judgment, not to a throne of wrath, not to a throne where it throws us into fear, but rather you're called to a throne of unmerited behavior or favor. You're called to a throne of grace, where at that uh, throne of grace you receive mercy, which is emphasizing a forgiveness of sin. It mercy is kindness. And the kindness here is that you receive forgiveness. You also find grace, it says, where we may receive mercy and find grace. And what is grace? That is that unmerited favor of God. It, it's not something 
that we earned. And that grace is for this purpose. Look what it says. And find grace to, that's the purpose of this grace, to help in time of need. But specifically, I think this time of need and this help is referring to our temptation. We already saw in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So in our most intense struggles, Jesus stands willing to help when the battle is fiercest. This word help, it's an interesting word. I want to I give you an example of how it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to kind of give us an idea of this help. In Acts chapter 27, in verse 17, Paul is in the midst of a storm on a ship, and they are fearing that the ship is going to break apart. And so you read this, this in, in Acts 27, 17, after hoisting it up, they use supports to undergird the ship. That idea that undergirding the ship is help. So when the ship is about ready to come apart because of the storm that Paul and the sailors find themselves in, they undergird it with support in order to keep it together. That's another way that that word help is translated. So you think of it this way, when temptation is at its fiercest, or whatever the weakness it is that you're facing, whatever it is, Jesus comes as an undergirding support to hold you together. So when life is like a crashing storm and you're like that ship that is tossed to and fro, the Lord Jesus comes along and undergirds you and holds you together. That's what it means that He helps. Is when things are the toughest, you come to Him, you draw near to Him, you receive grace, you receive mercy, and there He is to see that you persevere. That doesn't mean the storm's removed. Doesn't mean you don't take your lumps. It means that Jesus holds you together. Because we are going to face lumps. We are going to face the difficulties of life. But Jesus calls us to call unto Him where He will help us. I think this is specifically referring to our temptation. What do you do when facing temptation? Temptation comes before you, innerly or outwardly. I think there's sometimes usually two responses. A defeated appeal to Jesus where we just go ahead and give in to the temptation and then later say, Jesus, forgive me. Or a sincere appeal to Jesus. So how do we deal with this in drawing near. What does that look like? Trusting in Jesus in the midst of temptation is not to give in to the temptation. But trusting in Jesus is to trust that Jesus has a better plan and a better result than the temptation tempts to provide for you. You see, that's what we're always faced with, is if I give in to this temptation, 
whatever it may be, this temptation is promising that I'm going to get something out of it. And that's what entices us, right? That's what gets us to think it over and to mull it over and go, I'm going to receive this promise from this temptation. Temptation always promises you something, but it never delivers. It actually leaves you feeling guilty, leaves you feeling like there's a void in your life. It never provides what it promises. Trusting in Jesus is to trust that actually getting through that temptation is that His plan is actually better for you. His purposes are better for you. So when you face temptation, what are we called called to do here? To draw near to Christ. When we face temptation, when we face weaknesses in this life, and we want to turn away from God, when we want to turn away from God's people, we're actually doing the opposite of what God calls us to do. He calls us to come unto Him. And the picture, I think, is beautiful here, is just consider for a moment the hand of Christ is reaching out to you. And He's saying, draw near to me. Come near to me. What would keep us back? I think sometimes it's a fear of our own sinfulness, our, our own shame. How could God accept me? You know, the truth of it is, is this. He chose you out of the pleasure of His own good will. You didn't do anything to earn it. You didn't do anything to keep it. And you can't. And if you could lose it, you would have lost it. It had nothing to do with our performance, our merit, or anything. So what would keep us back from Him? Because we see we have a great high priest that mediates on our behalf and says, Come unto me. I want you to consider the truths of Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord. Why would we look anywhere else in temptation? Why would we look anywhere else for salvation? Why would we look anywhere else for comfort, for truth, for answers, for life? Why would we look anywhere else? Is there, is there someone, something, or anything that can compare with the Son of God? So this morning, Jesus calls you to draw near to Him. Jesus calls you to draw near to His throne of grace. Jesus calls you to draw near unto His throne of grace that you may receive mercy and grace and help in your time of need. He calls you to draw near Him. He calls you to hold fast to Him. And so let me ask you this morning, will you do that? Will you hold fast to the confession? Will you draw near to Him? Will you cling to His cross with your empty hand of faith? Will you sit at His feet for life? The Lord Jesus tells you right now, He tells all of us this, draw near to Me. Whether you're a believer, He calls you to draw near to Him. And if you're not a believer, He calls you to draw near to Him in faith that He is Jesus, the Son of God, 
our great high priest that has passed through the heavens and stands on our behalf, mediating even right now. Would you draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ today? Would you draw near to him who can offer you salvation? He stands willing to receive you, even now. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in him we have salvation, we have forgiveness of sins, that we have your smile upon us. Father, I pray for any that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw them in saving faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.